Savages. people of the valley, the offspring of Rome, did not venture high into the rocks of the Cranion. They knew its slopes and springs, its fields and grasses. They knew each little creek that fed into the spine. Though boys hunted for food and skins in the lower part of the forest, and though their fathers let them stalk the boar and dog runs that crisscrossed the base, nobody traveled higher than the tree line. There were wolves and bears that lurked in the inky blackness, and rumors of the terrible people the cave dwellers, the Turons, cannibals that sprang up from hidden tunnels and grabbed and bit and tore and pulled their victims underground to die in unspeakable lairs. But when the great ball of fire streaked out of the heavens one morning, cutting a black swath through the white clouds, a small group of men, seven warriors and the white one, the man of books, the man from the Ompau, where the bloody virus desiccated his arm and killed all of his people, set out to climb the mountain and see what it was. Anyi's father was among the warriors, and his brother, too. He was there in the great house when it was decided who would go. Rumors and myths floated in the air. One man, who Anyi thought stupid, said very loudly to anyone who would listen, It's a demon hurled by the white robes from salvation. It will kill us all. A few around him laughed, but his wife, a squat little troll with a toad face, just nodded and scowled at those who continued to snicker, until finally they hid their smiles behind their hands. Another woman, a friend of Anyi's mother, said, It's not from salvation. It's from the other place, the Ompau. Her eyes shook nervously up at the front of the great house, where the chief sat, finally resting on the white one, the brother of Rome, who stood next to him. They sent the plague, the bloody sickness. Soon we'll all bleed from the mouth and... Hush, Shashani, a voice said. Anya relaxed. It was his mother. She lay a comforting hand on Shashani's shoulder. Nobody knows what it is. You've seen his arm, Shoshani retorted, nodding at the white one. How do you think it got that way? Shoshani. I know what it is. I'm telling you. He brought it to us. Finally, when the great house was almost full, the chief held up his hands and all fell silent. We have all seen the fire in the sky, and we are all scared. It's a demon, someone yelled. It's the blood sickness. Murmurs rolled through the people. The chief held up his hands again, and gradually the noise died down. We have no proof of this. We know only what we've seen, nothing else. The white one, the brother of Rome, stood still, a frown on his face, surveying the crowd. But you can't know for sure what it is, a third voice growled. This one was deep and dark, confident and sure, when the others had been uncertain and shrill. Anyi knew the owner of this one. It belonged to a man named Balo. He was tall and muscular, and he wore a breastplate of shells that barely covered his broad chest. Anya was afraid of him. Once, when he and Toro were playing, they trampled some nets Balo hung out to mend. 
The man roared out of the front door when he saw what they'd done and thrashed them with both fists, blackening their eyes and splitting their lips. Anyi tried to hide the bruises from his father, but it was impossible. When he told him what happened, his father's face reddened, but he merely grunted and said, You should not have torn his nets. The boys did not go near Balo's longhouse for a week, but one day they came across him fishing the spine. His face was swollen and bruised, cross-stitched with cuts, and he held his arm in a sling against his chest. That night, while they ate, Anyi snuck a peek at his father's right hand. The knuckles were split and thick, and he avoided using it to pick up his food. When he caught Anyi looking, he put it in his lap. If you say it is nothing, then I say it is something, Balo spat. Anyi looked at his father, but his father only stared straight ahead. I say it's a bashi. A few people gasped. And I think he brought it on us, he added, pointing at the white one. Murmurs of assent. The white one was one of them, everyone agreed. But he was also not to be trusted. He was one of them and he was not. There were more than a few who, though they knew better, secretly blamed him for whatever wickedness befell the people. Fish harvest low? Daughter struck by a snake? Cast a glance at the white one's longhouse. Anyi's father and mother were not like this. And amidst the low rumble, did he see the white one smile a little? Did he lean over and whisper into the chief's ear? The chief held up his hands, and the people grew silent again. Who is it to say what it is and what it isn't? Nobody will know until we find out. Send him, Balo cried out. Send him to climb the cranium with his withered arm. Anyi wondered why the white one didn't roar and charge Balo. If someone challenged him like this in his circle of friends, a fight would have broken out. Why didn't the white one get angry? Balo smirked and absorbed his sudden popularity, but the white one only smiled back. Finally, when the noise died down again, the chief said, Balo, you are strong and brave, and you are a good fisherman. Anyi thought he could see Balo's head swell. He puffed out his chest. You think you are clever, too but you use your fists when you should use your mouth, and you use your mouth when you should use your brain. Bahlo's face darkened. The chief's eyes glinted in the torchlight. You are right. He is going. Bahlo smirked. And so are you. Anyi was not allowed to go. Though he whined and argued, though he insisted that he was going, his father said no, and his mother absolutely forbade it. So he waited for darkness to come, and snuck out with his spear and two torches, and he met his best friend Toro by a little creek that ran through the folds of the slope at the base of the mountain, and they set out to climb the cranny in themselves. It was midnight, and the moon was high and full and as they pushed through the last of the slope grasses, it provided enough light for them to see clearly. Everything seemed chiseled. The individual blades of grass, the sharp angles of the stones, even the leaves on the trees stood out in stark blue and silver relief. But under the canopy, the leaves and branches blocked out all life and light, 
drowned the pine floor in dull gray, even in the light of day. Anyi hoped to save their torches for later, but after the second time he tripped and barked his shin on a stump, and after the third time Toro ran headlong into a tree, it was clear they had to use them immediately. He stopped and sparked his flint to light the torches, and the torches roared to life, but even then they only illuminated a dull gray patch as they waded through the night. How far are they? Toro whined. How do you know they went this way? Father said they hoped to be at the cloud line by morning. He said they were going straight up the south face. This is the south face. But the higher they climbed, the thicker the canopy grew. The broad trunks and roots blocked the winding paths. Brushes and saplings battled for precious light and water, pitched wars of attrition to eke out survival on the inhospitable rocks and boulders that boiled up out of the earth. Here, the fairy tales said, lurked the Turons, roaming the rocks, perpetually hungry, drool dripping from their fangs, talons slick with blood. Or so Toro constantly reminded Anyi as I walked. Shut up, Toro, Anyi said. Toro jumped and jimmied at every creature that skittered in the trees in the underbrush. Twice his torch grazed Anyi's skin and hair. Ah, Toro, he hissed the third time it happened. He grabbed the torch with his free hand and pulled it away. Sorry, Anyi. Anyi felt bad and handed it back. Just be careful, okay? I've never been up this high before. I know, Toro. None of us have. As the landscape changed from path dry pine needles to a maze of rocks and thorn bushes, the boys slackened their pace until they proceeded at something close to a crawl. They twisted their ankles and bumped into each other, hissed as the thorns shredded their skin. Anyi stayed in front, held his torch in one hand, his spear in the other. But the dark grew so complete that soon they were useless. He'd been aware of the predator for quite some time. At first it wasn't any conscious sign, nothing he could put a physical finger on and say, ah, here it is. Rather, it was more of a gradual realization, a feeling not unlike the one a mother gets when the house grows too silent, or the one a child gets when he stares too long into the dark. Then Toro bumped into him again and they stopped, and just under his friend's blurted apology, Anyi heard it. A twig snapped. After that, he felt like he was flexing his ears, straining for any sound, imagined or not. He couldn't tell the difference between a gentle breeze or a stealthy step. Then the torches, already sputtering, burned down to nothing but thin red lines in the darkness, and dozens of green eyes blinked to life all around them. Anyi, Toro whispered. Without a word, Anyi dropped the dead torches and grabbed his friend's wrist and yanked him forward, away, he thought, from the glowing eyes. Toro yelped and stumbled, but Anyi didn't let go, pulled him harder, leaned into the darkness. His shins barked boulders, and the thorns seemed to close in, puncturing his arms and legs and thighs. One carved a rut in his scalp. Blood and sweat ran into his eyes. Behind them, the monsters closed. He heard the chuff of their breath, an occasional snort. Their feral fur smelled of musk and dead leaves, heavy and strong. Toro called out in pain, and Anya was pulled back for a second, but he recovered and pushed onward. Then something bit into his calf, and he stabbed down with his spear. The monster yelped, and he was free. He fell to the left, expecting to crumble into pine and thorn, but instead felt cold stone. Boulders! Tall and round, they could climb, gain the higher position! Up, Toro! Still gripping his friend's wrist, Anya leapt and lashed out for purchase, blindly slapped for an outcropping, a ledge, a crack, a crevice, anything he could use to get away. His hand struck a branch and he pulled, feet scrambling against the rock. Anyi. Nothing more than a whisper. Wait. 
Anya ignored him and pulled. Toro was lighter than he expected, but Anya was full of adrenaline and fear, and maybe that contributed to his strength. He swung his legs over the top and reached out for Toro's other hand, found his waist instead, and hauled. Anya. He didn't listen. He wanted to yell that they needed to run, needed to get away, that the things, whatever they were, were right on them, and climbing a dumb rock was only the first step. He tightened his grip on Toro's wrist and turned and took a step out into thin air, and suddenly he was falling into the void, his friend behind him. He tried to stick his feet out before they landed, if they landed, to brace himself. But before he could straighten them, he struck something hard, and his ankle twisted, and he was rolling, tumbling down a steep decline, rocks buffeting his arms and legs and torso, but he didn't let go of Toro's wrist, not for one second. Airborne again, only for a moment, before landing hard on his chest, and all the wind woofed out of his lungs, and he lay there struggling to breathe, to force oxygen into his body, pain roiling every inch of him, before he took one enormous rasping gasp. Then... If it were at all possible, more chaos broke out. He saw them, his father, his brother, Balo, the others. They were there, kneeling in the clearing into which Anya had fallen, staring at him, startled. But why was his brother face down? Then the beasts leapt into their midst, snarling and snapping, three of them. One leapt upon the shadowy figure standing over his brother's form and took it down, and Bahlo tried to run out of the clearing but was cut in half by spears that sung from out of nowhere. More beasts burst out of the woods. More shouts and screams littered the blue-black night. The clouds overhead parted for the moon. A tall, dark figure covered its eyes in the sudden pale light. And finally, Anyi was able to search for Toro, to think of his friend whose wrist he still grasped in his own hand, and saw that, for all of his pain and effort, a wrist was all he held. Anya awoke to a painful throb in his temples. It was worse than anything he'd ever experienced. Worse than any beating his father gave him. Worse than any thrashing he'd undergone in training. It was so bad that he grew weak and ill when he tried to sit up. Immediately, he heard his father's voice soothing him, calming him, and that's when he realized he could barely see a thing. That he emerged from pitch darkness into pitch darkness. Gradually, the light seeped its way into the black green and pale and weak, it nonetheless provided some illumination. The throbbing gently subsided once his head returned to the cold, hard dirt. Don't talk, Anyi, his father said. But, shh. Anyi heard the clang of metal, and a gruff voice barked and hissed something at them. He didn't need to understand what was being said to know that they were being guarded, and that they'd just been given orders. His father shouted back, placing a hand on his chest. The guard kicked Anyi's feet and hissed again, and the next thing he knew, rough hands grabbed him by the neck and yanked him to his feet. The pain spiked through his head, and his vision darkened. Then his father was there, propping him up, shouting. The guard struck at them with the butt of a spear, hitting Anyi in the shoulder, the leg, the stomach, and he doubled over. He was yanked forward by his hair, and suddenly he was face to face with his captor. The green light tinted the guard's skin a sickly color its nose broad and flat with slit nostrils, and its eyes, its eyes were black where they should have been white, 
with yellow oval corneas punctuated with wide blood-red pupils. Its ears, cat-like and swiveling, twitched at every noise, seeking the source. It growled something and threw him farther down the tunnel from which it came, then did the same to his father. It followed close behind, jabbing occasionally with its spear, and they stumbled along in the green semi-darkness, tripping on the hidden rocks that the guards seemed to easily sidestep. It laughed harshly when Anyi's father fell hard to his knees, then kicked him in the back so that he landed on his face. The air was sharp and cold and difficult to breathe. Anyi noticed the source of light in the tunnel was not torches, but patches of green moss growing on the rocks that lined the walls. Some sections were dark where the moss didn't grow, some over bright where it covered an entire boulder. In the distance he saw a dark opening. The guard ushered them to it, and they emerged into a huge chamber in which gathered hundreds of people exactly like the guard. Cadaverous complexions, yellow-black eyes, feline ears. Their chief sat at the opposite end, on a throne made of the same glowing moss that lit the tunnel. The people jeered at them and threw rocks. One hit his father in the face and blood streamed down his cheek. It was at that moment that Anyi knew he was going to die. Father, he said, it's my fault. Hush, Anyi, you don't know what you're talking about. The guards shoved them to their knees at the foot of the chief's throne. Anyi looked up and saw a slobbering old man softly gibbering to himself in the crook of his shoulder. The guards seemed to ask something, but the chief continued to babble. The guard asked again, and the chief broke out of his state, his eyes snapping upon Anyi. He stood and spread his arms to his people, and they responded with a roar. More rocks rained down upon the captives. The old man clapped his hands and gestured at the shadows. Two men emerged, long, thick blades gripped in their hands. Close your eyes, Anyi, his father said. But Anyi couldn't. If these were to be his last moments, he wanted to see it all. There the crazy old man cackling in the green light. There, the stone-faced executioner, the rusty blade held aloft. There, the tears of jeering faces. He locked his eyes on the madman and glared, and then a sound the likes of which he'd never heard slipped under the din of the crowd, and the old man's body split in two from hip to shoulder by a smoking black line. The chamber fell silent. Then the noise happened again, like a rope zipping over a rock, and one of the executioner's heads disappeared. The other lost his hands. Anyi's father pulled him to his feet and began to run. That's when he saw him, the white one, the brother of Rome, kneeling in the shadows, his odd staff cradled in his desiccated arm. A red bolt of lightning shot out of its end, and the sound filled his ears. Hurry! the white one cried. He followed them into a tunnel as they passed, firing as he trotted backwards, covering their escape. It felt like hours before they broke the surface. The temperature slowly dropped as they jogged along, navigating the tunnels in the darkness. Anyi realized how high up they must have been, even if they were underground. The tunnel ascended sharply until they had to climb a narrow hole with rocks for footholds. Anyi went first, though he was exhausted. His legs hurt, his ribs hurt, his head hurt. The little circle above turned from a window of pale blue into a gaping maw, and suddenly he broke out of the ground and threw himself onto the icy rocky earth.
Once they were all out, the white one trained his staff on the hole, fired down into it in case any of their captors were in pursuit, then fired it into the earth all around, churning up great chunks of dirt and rocks that collapsed into the emptiness until all that was left was a slight depression in the earth. Like the hole never existed, like those things beneath the earth never were. They hiked another few hours, always leading up, up. The white one took the lead, followed by Anyi. Anyi's father struggled to carry on, pressing his hand against his ribs as they clambered over the increasingly rocky terrain. There were no paths, and the white one urged them forward, faster, faster, so that when Anyi's father stumbled, there was nobody around to help him to his feet. The white one finally stopped when it began to sleep, and Anyi's father collapsed and passed out. It was then that Anyi saw the wet red stain in his clothes. The white one dragged him under an outcropping and rummaged around in his pack. He's dying, Anyi said, flat and exhausted. Go get some snow, the white one ordered. Pack his wound with it. Make sure it's clean. When Anyi returned, he saw the white one pass two small white tablets into his father's mouth. What are those? The white one did not answer. Anyi did as he was told with the snow. Then he set about gathering what wood he could find to build a fire. No, the white one said. He was wrapping his weapon in a worn leather blanket that he'd oiled to keep out the water. But we can't risk being spotted, Anyi. You mean the smoke? Well, maybe. But it's more about the heat. They don't see the way we do. Anyi frowned, struggling to comprehend. The white one sighed. He picked up a stick to draw on the snow. Cats can see in the dark too, right? They can make their pupils into slits, and that makes it more difficult for the light to get in, or they can open up their pupils until it seems to take up the whole eye. But that's only the half of it. Did you notice the moss in the walls? Anyi did. Light doesn't penetrate the mountain, but the moss was hot, and that's how they see. They don't see forms or colors. They see heat. Anyi's father moaned in his sleep. What did you give him? There is no word for it in your language. They sat for a while in silence, listening to the shush of the snow. Clever trick, the white one finally said, using that wolf. It brought down three of those cannibals by itself. We didn't do it on purpose. We just wanted to see what the ball of fire was. The white one said nothing for a moment. Then he said, I think it might be more than a ball of fire. Anyi ignored him and continued. They were chasing us, those things. We didn't know. We fell. A happy accident then. Anyi frowned at him. Was it happy that Toro was dead? His brother and the other men too? Was it happy that his father was dying? Anyi traced patterns in the snow with his fingertip. He worried about his mother and sisters. Would the people under the mountain, the Turans, come for them? Why? he asked. The white one tilted his head. Why what? Why can't we see heat? Why can't the Turans see like us? Turans? Is that what you call them? Anyi nodded. I see. He held out his good arm. Let me see yours. Anyi did the same. See the difference? The boy nodded, of course. Not just in color. Your skin is thicker. It's one of the first things I noticed about your people. Keeps the bugs away, absorbs the light better. Did you ever wonder why I wear these thick robes? Why my face turns red even in the winter? Toro says, used to say, it was because you had a demon in you and that you were trying to sweat it out. 
The white one coughed and suddenly laughed out loud, startling the boy who smiled with uncertainty. Was he being mocked? <laughs> I'm not teasing. I don't have a demon in me, Anyi. I'm just hot. The sun here is too strong for me. Where I grew up, in Compound B, we had a protective bubble, like a little sky, over our village that cut the sun's effect. We also stayed inside a lot. Our skin never evolved the way that yours did. It can't handle the heat or the bugs, especially the bugs. He paused a sip from a little metal container that Anya had never seen before. He grimaced and handed it to the boy, gestured for him to drink. Anya put it to his lips and took a big gulp. The liquid burned his throat all the way down to his belly, and he coughed and gasped and handed the container back to the white one. Then the warmth came, generated in his chest and spread out through his limbs and face. It's something to do with their eyes, Anyi said, finally understanding. Living down there in the dark like that? The white one smiled and nodded. Get some rest, Anyi, he said. We'll find the ball of fire in the morning. Anyi's father did not wake up. They left him propped up against the rock, his body covered in a light layer of snow. Anyi did not cry. He no longer had any tears. He no longer felt the cold. Every bone ached, despite the blanket the white one gave him, despite the drink that warmed his belly but never his bones. He no longer cared. They climbed in silence through the gray clouded mist. It snowed, it snowed some more, and then it didn't. When the path ended in cliffs or boulders, they climbed. Anyi said he was hungry. The white one gave him bites of dried fish. Once, they were stalked by a wolf. The white one used his weapon to kill it. Then they skimmed the carcass, and Anyi wrapped the fur around his numb feet, draped it over his shivering shoulders. He grew winded. They both did. It's the air, the white one gasped, trying to catch his breath. The higher we... He gestured at the sky. It thins. And finally, suddenly, more sudden than the boy could imagine, they reached the top. It was the most beautiful, desolate, terrifying sight Anyi had ever seen. It was as if they had reached an alien world, where the valley below rilled with rolling hills, where bees buzzed and insects chittered, where the spine roared in the spring rains, where every color imaginable dotted the landscape like dripping wax, the world on top of the cranian was a flat white expanse of snow that stretched on in perpetuity, ending in white mist and shadows of far-off mountains. They gulped and gasped, their breath clouding the air. A few hundred yards before them stretched the black line left by the ball of fire. It sliced through the permafrost, leaving red glowing rocks in its wake. Steam fogged the air. They followed it for miles, slogging close enough to feel the heat, but far enough away to duck into the tundra should they need to. The white one muttered to himself as they marched through the snow. The language was strange, filled with guttural utterances. Anyi could only make out a few words, but it sounded like he was reciting something, perhaps something from one of his books. 
The falling snow changed from flurry to downpour. Then the white one stopped in his tracks. Do you see it? Anyi did, far off, a warm yellow glow in the distance. It burned through the storm. Is it on fire still? he asked. The white one shook his head, and snow fell from his long black hair. No, those are lights. When Anyi didn't respond, he added, Electric lights, torches, without flame. He urged them on, and as they approached, towers loomed up out of the storm. The clouds darkened as evening fell, and Anyi could make out a dome in the center of the light. Before he could say anything, the white one cried out, It's them! It's really them! Figures dotted the towers, human figures, guards. Anyi didn't want to go on, but the white one sprinted forward, withdrew his weapon, and fired it into the air. It reminded Anyi of the stories his father used to tell him about the White Knights of Salvation. It seemed to work. At the first blast of his weapon, the figures on the towers also fired into the sky. Anyi struggled to catch up. Wait! he cried. The white one turned, beaming at him. He'd never seen the man smile. Come, Anyi! These are my people! Here at last! They've come for me! Then Anyi heard a deep thud, and the end of a spear was suddenly sticking out of the white one's chest. The white one fell back onto the snow, the ecstatic smile frozen on his face, his life seeping out of his body, staining his robes red. It was them. Their captors. The Turans. The people under the earth. Three of them rushing for him in the snow, one pulling bone knives from the wolfskin draped over his shoulders, the other two heaving spears. Anyi remembered his training, what little of it he had. The wind was up, heading in his direction, so he rolled forward and the spears chunked in the snow behind him. Then he rolled back and pried the white one's weapon from his hand and pointed it at his aggressors. It was a long, cold, heavy metal thing, and it thrummed with an unseen energy from somewhere within. Anyi had seen the white one use it before, and so had the Turons, in the tunnels, and maybe that would be enough. The one in the lead slowed when he saw what Anyi held. First he frowned and grimaced. Then he laughed, exposing his pointed teeth, and turned to his friends, pointing. He said something in his gruff language, and the other one sneered, glowering at the boy. Anyi felt around on the stock for something, something that would make the weapon work. He tried to remember what the white one had done. He'd pointed it, gripping the stock just so, right here, and squeezed his hand and... The zipping sound filled his ears, and ozone filled the air, and the lead attacker was cut in two. His upper torso, still pointing, fell to the snow. The others cried out, then stared at Anyi in horror. Another squeeze and one fell, stricken to the snow. The last one turned to flee, and Anyi fired again, missed, missed, and finally cut him down at the legs. He didn't hear the ship until it was upon him. He spun, thinking it was another ambush, aimed the weapon into the sky, and gasped. It was a boat, a massive boat made of the same kind of metal he held in his hands. Blue light hummed from behind, and through the wide glass window in the front, Anyi could see two people with pale skin, the white one's people, looking back at him. He was right. They had come for him. Then two bolts of lightning burst out of the cannons mounted on the ship's nose, and Anyi had time to suck in his breath, and then he saw no more. What do you think that was all about? The pilot asked. Sergeant Melissa Blanco adjusted her blue Federation cap 
and scratched underneath. The climate on this damn planet dried out her skin. And even though the snow added a little humidity to the air, for two nights in a row she'd woken up with a sore throat so painful that every time she swallowed, it was like drinking shards of glass. Who knows, she grumbled. Typical local savages. Maybe one stole a bone from the other's nose. The pilot, a young cadet with many illusions yet to shatter, ignored the casual racism. One of them had a Class 1 Ranger's rifle. Looks like an antique. Probably scavenged it from one of our earlier settlements. The pilot pushed a few buttons on his monitor, zooming in on the dead natives. That one's white! Sergeant Blanco pinched the bridge of her nose and squeezed her eyes shut. Jesus. Just take us back, Johnson. What the natives do to each other isn't our concern. They'll be dead soon enough. Pilot Johnson sighed and turned off his monitor. Fine, he said under his breath. What did it matter to him anyway? They really were just savages. Thank you for tuning into the Mad Tales podcast. I hope you enjoyed this week's chapter. If you cannot wait until next week to finish the story, you can always buy it in ebook and paperback form from Amazon.com, or you can buy it directly from me, both in ebook and in paperback, a signed paperback nonetheless, uh, from my website, www.jamesnoll.net. That's www.jamesnoll.net. And if you would love to support me on Patreon, I would love you to support me on Patreon. I'm offering all kinds of cool extras, including access to bonus material, uh, the ebooks released one week at a time, the chapter at a time, uh, customized short stories. And if I can build enough of a following, I want to film a live action version of Make the Hive Great Again, one of my favorite chapters from The Hive. It's uh, at the end of the first season. It's the very last chapter of the, of the first season. That would be an awesome thing to do. So if you want to visit my Patreon page, it's www.patreon.com slash madtails. That would be fantastic. And I will see you guys next week.